So this morning I want to uh, continue uh, exploring one of our core guiding texts from many thousands of years ago, which is the text called the uh, Foundations of Mindfulness, or it's sometimes called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Looks like a few people need, still need the handout. Now, I've been inspired to offer uh, some more detailed work with the Foundations of Mindfulness uh, coming out of a few sources. Uh, one of it, one of the sources was um, being part of this series on the four foundations of mindfulness that we've done uh, through four daylongs and preparing for that and hearing uh, from Sally and Sharda some of how they worked at the first and second foundation and then giving a lot of detailed work to the third foundation. And then people in this gathering hearing that I had done that and say, well, what about us? <laughs> can we, can we uh, have the best of that? Not the six or seven hour version, but the, you know, uh, to, uh, to really give focus on the foundations of mindfulness. And uh, so that, that was part of the inspiration. And so today I want to uh, come back. Uh, the last time I was here, I gave an overview on the four foundations of mindfulness, talked about e- what each of those four foundations are, which is mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of what's called feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which is particularly important because when we're not uh, aware of pleasant, we tend to grab hold of the pleasant experiences or the pleasant thoughts and so forth. And when we're not aware of the unpleasant uh, experiences, we tend to react, push it away, contract around unpleasant experiences in the body, um, often uh, contract, react around unpleasant emotional experiences, unpleasant thoughts, get lots of unpleasant thoughts, particularly, let's say, catastrophic thinking, worst case scenarios, negative thoughts just totally take us away when there's not mindfulness. Uh, of feeling tone, that the sense of the pleasant and unpleasant can so powerfully um, help us to partly be on the lookout. Okay, I'm having unpleasant experiences. It's very likely that I'm going to react in some ways. I just had an unpleasant encounter with my boss. It's It's likely that that may have all sorts of reactions occurring. So that's the second foundation. Third foundation is mindfulness we might say, of thoughts and emotions. And again, very uh, crucial foundation. How do we work skillfully with the whole range of thoughts and emotions when they arise? How do we see them, that they're there? Particularly see thoughts and emotions that are reactive, that are not helpful, to see our, to notice, okay, what are my top 10 unhelpful thoughts and emotions? You know, or what are my, another way to say it is, what are my own patterns that get me in trouble or that cause suffering, right? And so mindfulness of thoughts and emotions is crucial in that way. And I like to think that the first three foundations of mindfulness are very much to let us see the different constituents of experience, uh, sensations and different experiences in the body coming through our different senses, feeling tone, thoughts and emotions, 
And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is especially about how do we see larger patterns of experience. And then in the classical text is presented through different frameworks, I think the most important of which is seeing experience through the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, that is seeing suffering, the roots of suffering, and how to, when suffering arises, how to work with it. The starting point for our whole path of practice is the understanding that suffering is workable, that our difficulties are workable, that they have to do with the nature of the mind and the body and the heart, and that they are not our fate, but that they are workable, and that it's possible to actually practice with challenging thoughts, emotions, body states, in a way which leads to the diminishing in strength of what are most, our most difficult patterns. So very hopeful, optimistic, very practical guidance. And the fourth foundation particularly is about those larger patterns. And I like to think that a contemporary version of the fourth foundation also has to do with us studying our personal patterns. What are my personal patterns for uh, becoming reactive? You know, do I go into self-judgment when someone says something unflattering to me? Or do I go into anger? Or, do I, or maybe I go into equanimity and compassion for the person who is lost and saying negative things about me. <laughs> How many regularly do that? <laughs> That's the horizon of our practice, right? And then you can notice it maybe when, you know, like four-year-olds do it. (laughs) When four-year-olds say something really negative about you, there's some understanding, hopefully, (laughs) that it could be more about the four-year-old than about you, right? How about teenagers? Teenagers, um, that's more advanced practice. (laughs) So... So these, these are these classical four foundations, and it's interesting that uh, the Buddha, 20, almost 2,600 years ago, focused on those four because it was a pretty good choice. You know, and where, do you, where might you focus on experience? And, of course, we could say that the body, in, in a sense, it's commonsensical. You focus on the body, you focus on uh, thoughts, emotions. Feeling tone's a little unusual in the lineup, right, to focus on pleasant and unpleasant. And I think when we look at it, we can see why that's so important. That was, as it were, a very uh, good move by the Buddha, <laughs> a stroke of insight. Okay. And, uh, but it's interesting because he just chose four. He said, he didn't say, be mindful, okay, end of instruction. He said, be mindful in these areas. These are crucial areas. In other words, look in these directions um, rather than just look you know, generally or independently of any particular uh, guidance. And so those, those are the instructions. Today I want to focus on mindfulness of the body. And I was also thinking of the importance of this because I just came back from teaching for the first time at Esalen. Tell us about Dancing with the Buddha. I co-taught a retreat called Dan- The Dancing Buddha. Which was, I think, probably, I don't, it's probably something that's happened before, but it was an extended collaboration 
between contemplative dance, as it were, her collaboration involving the integration of contemplative dance and the practices of the heart, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And I think we, think we did well, and we're, you know, we've been invited to do it again, maybe about a year from now. So it was a lot of fun, but it's also very much about grounding in the body through movement, through uh, self-expression, and also through the classical meditations of the heart. And we blended them. So that a lot of the, we had joy dances <laughs> and equanimity dances. And we brought in the phrases as one is dancing, bring in the loving kindness phrases. And it was very much about um, body practice, really. Yeah, so it was, uh, that also inspired me. And I was thinking, I don't know, I don't know how it would be to do dancing in here on Wednesday morning. How many, how many would like a little bit of that? It would be, be optional. <laughs> you could, could stand all, along the wall and watch other people if you feel so fit. But it would be maybe five or ten minutes. But I was, I was thinking about that maybe. Do a mini one? Yeah, a mini version maybe for the next time I come. How many would like that actually? How many would not like it? <laughs> okay, I, wanna, I don't want to get carried away by um, misreading the enthusiasm <laughs> of the group. But I think uh, there'd be ways of doing it that really would not be about, it could be, it's really just about movement, which could be slow. It could just be standing, standing up and swaying a little bit. <laughs> which hopefully is in most people's repertoire. <laughs> okay. okay, so that's been some of the inspiration. And uh, so focus today on mindfulness of the body, uh, which I think is crucial. You know, it was crucial at the time of the Buddha. I think it's very crucial now. You know, at the time of the Buddha, mindfulness of the body was taken to be, first of all, the starting point for practice. It's a starting point because it's very accessible to be aware of the breath, to be aware of the sensations in the body. It's accessible for everyone. And so it was actually the starting point, a place of meditation that's very accessible. It's also very grounding. And in the teachings of the Buddha, he said that mindfulness of the body is actually, we might think of it as this simple practice, just being with the breath, or being with one's body as one is walking, and being with the sensations of the body, or being aware um, of part of the body, like when you're at a meeting, being aware of your hands on your knee, or the contact with the chair. These are very, very simple practices, but they're actually quite profound when they're developed highly. And so in the classical tradition, the Buddha uh, talked about um, someone who had developed mindfulness of the body to a good extent, had a lot of very positive consequences. The Buddha said that mindfulness of the body brings joy. That when we are really in the body fully, it can bring a certain amount of bliss and almost like a happiness in the body. There's a quote I want to, I want to give you from a, a 20th, mostly 20th century teacher who was the name Achan Moon, who was the teacher of Achan Cha. In, in Thai, Achan just means teacher. So it's be like teacher Cha, teacher Moon, and so forth. 
And Achan Cha was the teacher of Jack Cornfield and Chan Semedo. So this is like Jack Cornfield's grandfather. <laughs> and this is, this is from his own writing. He was writing about himself. He found a cave of wonders, of endless happiness, that is, his body. As he gazed through the cave of wonders, his suffering was destroyed, his fear appeased. He gazed and gazed around the mountainside, experiencing unbounded peace. So there's a way that mindfulness of the body can bring uh, peace, joy, it can bring concentration. One of the main ways that concentration is developed, uh, particularly uh, in many, many uh, Buddhist traditions, is by being aware of the breath and staying with the breath. And it's said that on the night of Buddha's awakening, he was only doing practice of mindfulness of the breath. Same thing we do here. And that's what he did, and it took him all the way to awakening. So mindfulness of the body has the potential to take one very deeply when you stay with it. It can lead to insight. It can lead to uh, freedom. There's one place in the text where the Buddha talks about the different uh, uh, value, the different values of mindfulness of the body. And he says that um, when we're really deeply grounded in mindfulness of the body, we are a conqueror of discontent. Another, another value is that mindfulness of the body, well-developed, conquers fear and dread. And we can see this, that actually when we can ground in the body, the fears, the emotions, the runaway thoughts have much less power when there's a strong grounding in the body. And sometimes we can actually use that grounding in the body. You know, it's like, okay, like, like people say, right? People say, okay, you're at the dentist and you see a six-inch needle coming your way. Okay, okay, Donald, breathe. <laughs> Right? We say that, right? Or we could say, just or we could say, just be with the sensations, and it's the thoughts that are scary, right? We scare ourselves. Wasn't there an old popular song that said that? I scare myself. I forget who that was. I think a local group, right? Okay. Anyway, Dan Hicks. <laughs> Dan Hicks. That's right. That's right. I, I, local. I knew it was local. Yeah. So. This is what happens giving a talk, that memory comes in and blends with prepared, <laughs> prepared thoughts. So um, that's what happens with our, uh, you know, with our fear, that they're, they're to some extent runaway thoughts. Also can be you know, influenced by the body and by the body being tense or um, you know, overly agitated and so forth. And mindfulness of the body can help with all that. Um, in the text, it said that when you're really well-developed in mindfulness of the body, uh, some of the usual discomforts of the body have much less effect. Heat and cold, gadflies and mosquitoes are less threatening <laughs> when there is well-developed mindfulness of the body. You know, concentration develops and insight can develop. So it's taken as a very powerful capacity to be, to be mindful of the body. And I think in our time, I find that mindfulness of the body is almost the crucial capacity to have awareness and mindfulness come into daily life. 
And that, you know, personally, I went through about a four-year period, including quite a few retreats, where my, almost my entire focus was awareness of the body. And it took me from a place where, at that point, I was, had fairly good mindfulness body, but it really deepened it. You know, originally, I've told the story a few times, where originally, when I started meditation, uh, I was thinking all the time. I was a student, and students are supposed to think a lot. <laughs> you know, and you go to classes, and you think with others. <laughs> and, you know, it can be very useful, and so forth. But I, even though, when I was young, I was quite physical. I was, you know, I was one of those kids who did a lot of sports a lot of the time, and I was actually a competitive athlete, as I've mentioned from time to time. I was a, a swimmer, and sometimes I've thought that mindfulness of the body would have been more painful when I was doing training. It was maybe good to not be so mindful of what was actually going on. <laughs> but anyway, who knows what I was, who knows what one thinks when going laps back and forth, but it was, I wasn't so aware of my body. And, and so when I came, uh, you know, there was this point that I've, I've mentioned occasionally where I was uh, living for a year in Germany, and I had that experience where I noticed myself walking, just thinking all the time, and I said, I'm nothing other than consciousness on a pole. <laughs> you, know, you know, it was a shocking experience that I was not in my body. And so for me, shortly after that, I started meditation, and it was a revelation. It was to come back to sensory experience and have that be strong, to be with the sunsets and not be thinking all the time, right? not be distracted so much, and to be with friends and be able to listen to what the other person was saying rather than being preparing my own thoughts or my rebuttal or, or whatever, you know? And so that was revelatory. And probably for many or most of us, same, similar experience, you know? Maybe some of you were more grounded in your bodies than, than I was. But uh, a very powerful way that especially in the context of this culture, which, again, it's different for different kinds of backgrounds. It's, you know, different for, I think, different for different subcultures. I think there's some gender differences and so forth. But by and large, this is a culture which is very, um, for many people, is oriented towards the mental. It's, you know, I mean, you can go back to Descartes and the 17th, middle of the 17th century, saying the hallmark of a human being is thought. So I think, I think it's a culturally contextual comment. You know, but he's saying, I think, therefore I am, right? From, from about 1650 or so. And uh, very much uh, guiding our culture. You know, our, the Western society, which is increasingly the world, and even more extreme in a way with all of the electronic media where how many of you have spend a good part of your time with electronic devices in a more mental realm? You know, how many of you are paid for, to do that? <laughs> many of us, right? You know, probably probably less, that, you know, less representative here than maybe of the general population, but it's very much that we are, um, are somewhat disconnected from our bodies. And mindfulness of the body, I think, is revolutionary. And it also is in my view, the means that makes this practice come alive in daily life. If we don't have mindfulness of the body, it's much harder to be mindful in the flow of daily life. And so there are whole sets of practices, and I'll come to some of those um, 
in a little while that I'll invite us to do until we meet again, right? That we can, I want to give some encouragement and support for focusing on that during the next, next weeks. And so uh, I personally think that mindfulness of the body is very connected with cultural healing as well. It's not just something that, it's kind of nice because it helps us to be mindful in daily life. I think the lack of awareness of the body has, is connected with certain cultural pathologies. You know, I think it's connected with the dis- disconnection with the earth, with the earth body. You know, It's very ironic that we emphasize so much the external appearance of the body. And in a sense, you know, we think of the culture as being very materialistic, but we're hardly aware from the inside of our bodies at all. It's quite interesting, isn't it, when you think about it? You know, so we focus more on a lot of the externals related to the body. You know? um, uh, and mindfulness of the body, I think, can be very connected also with uh, being healthy. You know, if we're really mindful of the body, I think we, we would tend to want to exercise, eat well, and so forth. This is from uh, Reggie Ray, Reginald Ray, some of you may know. He wrote a very interesting book called Touching Enlightenment, Finding Realization in the Body, which is in the bookstore. He's a Tibetan, uh, or a teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And this is what he said about the importance of the body. To be awake, to be enlightened, to be fully and completely embodied is to be fully and completely embodied. To be fully embodied means to be at one with who we are in every respect, including our physical being, our emotions, and and the totality of our karmic situation. It is to be entirely present to who we are and to the journey of our own becoming. It is to inhabit completely our relative reality with no speck of ourselves left over no external observer waiting for something else or something better. I see the global crisis and its manifestations both in the West and in the rest of the world as a crisis of disembodiment. So he says, to be awake, to be enlightened, is to be fully and completely embodied. And so I think when we, are, when we practice mindfulness of the body, we're not just doing it for ourselves, we're really doing it for others and for, I think, ultimately the healing of our world you know and it's, it's so it's, I think it goes it's quite quite profound as a practice and so how to you know how to do that uh, how to how to work with mindfulness uh, and mindfulness of the body um, in the text I, I made a I did a lot of cutting and pasting in the traditional sense uh, <laughs> <laughs> to try to make, to try to have the entire first foundation on two pages, so I could give you a one-sheet handout, and and so I want to say just a little bit about the about the text. Um, and if you look, if you look to the uh, to the first, I'll go th- briefly through some of the first paragraphs, and try to you know part of my intention is to bring the text alive. This is the guiding text. For, uh, for the mindfulness practice that we do. This is the guiding text, and it's only about 10 pages long, for the core practices that we do at Spirit Rock. This is the guiding text for the very existence of Spirit Rock. You know, and I think it's helpful to know it in more detail. And sometimes the translations make it a little bit hard to understand. So if you look at the uh, for very first paragraph, you'll see about... about uh, um, 
you'll see that it says, thus I have heard, which is the way most of these uh, texts go on, because as you may know, the Buddha's discourses were not written down until 500 years after he died. And they depended on memory. (laughs) It's interesting. Uh, The Buddha's assistant had something like a, I don't know what the equivalent of a photographic memory would be, but an audiographic memory, something like that. He, he could remember all the discourses, it is said. And so this is him saying, thus I have heard. I was there, I heard the text. And this was passed on by memory over several, many generations until it was finally written down in the language of Pali, which was not the language that the Buddha spoke, but it was a language that was prevailing when this project got underway. It's interesting. Yeah. And so, uh, thus I have heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the uh, Kuru country at the town and so forth. And then he addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhu means monk, and we can take that as practitioner. He said, practitioners, this is the direct path for the purification of beings. And he's referring to mindfulness. So mindfulness is taken to be a direct path for growth and learning. And in other parts of the text, the Buddha says that mindfulness is a very ancient path, the path of being aware in the present moment of what is happening. There's this very ancient path for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. And what he's really, this is, the, this is translation, but it's basically for the overcoming of our suffering our reactivity, our ways of being not at peace, and that this is a path that can be there, it says, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, which is for the realization of the deepest insight into who we are. So in other words, he's saying mindfulness goes all the way. This, this practice of being with the breath, being with the body, being with the emotions can go all the way. <clears throat> and then he, then he goes through uh, some qualities of mindfulness. He says, what are the four foundations of mindfulness? Here, a, a bhikkhu or a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. Ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Let me unpack those. There are four qualities, which are the qualities of mindfulness. The first is ardent. And we could say that this also means diligent. That a practitioner of mindfulness has to keep tracking things. Mindfulness is a practice that invites that quality of really being ardent, diligent, of having some energy, uh, uh, some um, real interest, curiosity, and what's the nature of things? What's the nature of our mind? And that quality of being ardent and diligent is an important quality for, for us, for practitioners of mindfulness. The second is, he says, that we are fully aware. That is a translation of sampajana. It could be also translated as clearly knowing. And that actually brings in the wisdom factor. So part of mindfulness, the reason that we are aware that we track experience, that we notice what's happening moment to moment, is it actually leads to wisdom. And has wisdom as part of it, that this clearly knowing factor means when I'm angry, I know I'm angry. That's what this is about. When I'm, when I'm uh, 
sad, I know I'm sad. When I've had a self-judgmental thought, I know that that's there. That's really what this is pointing to, that we are clearly knowing. That, and then there's more that could be said about that, but I just wanted to give that quick gloss. Then the third quality is being mindful, which is this being present with the experience in the present moment. And as it were, going into the experience fully. The invitation is when we're with the body, to be fully with the body. When we're with an emotion, to let ourselves go into it. When, even when there's an unpleasant sensation in the body, can I just be into it? Can I, in a way, lean into it? Can I say, okay, this is happening, let me feel it fully, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That's the spirit of mindfulness. And then the fourth quality is called here, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. That's a little, for me, that's a misleading translation. It really is about non-reactivity. It's really basically saying, we can't be mindful if we are grasping and pushing away. The translation for me doesn't do it. Sorry, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the rest of your translations are great, but a few lines here and there I would quibble with. And because what it's really saying is that mindfulness, when we're really being mindful, it's not reactive. We are not wanting. That's the covetousness part. We are not wanting something. We are not reaching and grabbing something. We are just able to be present with it. And it says, and grief for the world. This is really, again, this is uh, means for the experiences that occur, we are not grasping and we are not bemoaning and being reactive and pushing away. That's how I would unpack the word grief. So what this is saying is that to be mindful, we want to have good energy first, We want to really track what's happening, know what's going on, number two. We want to be mindful. We want to go into the experience and really be with it, number three. And we have to be non-reactive to do that. So that means that sometimes we need to settle the mind. And of course, sometimes we can be mindful when we are reactive. Interesting quality of mindfulness is that we can actually be mindful of moments when we're not mindful. We can, I can be mindful, I can say, I'm really feeling reactive towards what happened just now with my friend. You know, my body is tense, you know, my thoughts are going pretty fast, and I can say, let me track this, let me watch it. And maybe at the moments I'm reactive, I'm not mindful, but I can actually notice it, I can at least notice that was happening. So it's really interesting, it's almost like on the level of the brain, there can be an old pattern going, or some reactive pattern going, and then there also can be a parallel neural pathway, which we call mindfulness, which is going on at the same time as the old pattern, and by the fact it's actually having the old pattern uh, become weaker by the fact that we're noticing it. That's a lot of of how mindfulness works. So at the moment of mindfulness, we're non-reactive, but we can actually say, I'm being reactive, let me notice it. Let me be mindful. And that can act. So it's actually interesting in that way. <clears throat> and then we go down to the <clears throat> contemplation of the body. Again, the first foundation of mindfulness. And it says, how practitioners do we actually do this contemplation of the body? How do we practice mindfulness of the body? So we go to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut. Okay, what does that mean? (laughs) 
Yeah, it basically means, yeah, exactly. It basically means a relatively quiet and secluded place. Where we are now qualifies. <laughs> you know, that's what it's basically saying. It's basically if you want to practice mindfulness, don't have a lot of distractions going on, at least with your beginning practice. As we get good at mindfulness, of course, we bring it into all sorts of situations, including ones that have a lot of stimulation. We can do that. But if we're in the training period, and if we think of our daily sitting as a training, we need some degree of seclusion to practice it. So then we sit down, fold the legs crosswise, set the body erect. So again, this is basically saying the posture matters. Have an alert posture. You know, We could add to this, sit in a chair, have your feet flat on the floor. That would be part of it. So he's basically giving instructions here for where, what kind of situation you practice in, how the body is, and then uh, establish mindfulness in front. Ever mindful one breathes in, ever mindful one breathes out. And so you, we're, we're mindful of the breath. And we're mindful, uh, we notice that. And we, uh, you know, we can do the technique in various ways. And the major way that we do it here is we try to just be with the sensations of the breath and stay with the sensations of the breath and really be with that and be with it in the particularity of the breath. And this is our core practice for really settling the mind, stabilizing the mind, and coming into touch with the body. You know? Then the, um, <clears throat> if you go to the next section on the four postures, we, we have a second practice that's offered, which is to be mindful when one is in one of the postures of sitting, standing, lying, or walking. So it's basically to say, be mindful of your body when you're in those postures. And uh, it says, I understand I am walking, I understand I am standing. And so there's partly, you know, partly one could just have that awareness. We give a lot of focus to actually being with the sensations. And so how do we do this in daily life? It might be to take some time when you're walking and just be with the body to do walking meditation. When I was a student and had a lot of student work to do and was starting to get into meditation, I thought I don't have enough time for meditation. And then I had the insight that I do a lot of walking around town. At that time, I was not using a car. I was living in Boston. I was taking a lot of public transportation. I said, every time I'm walking, I'm doing walking meditation. And you can do that. You could say, let me, every time I'm walking, be with mindfulness of the body. It's a nice training. It's not taking any more time. I never had a whole, you know, I don't think I lost a lot of world-changing insights that would have come to me had I just been lost in thought during my walking. <laughs> you know? So we can do that. We can do, there are a lot of techniques for being aware of the body in these different postures. Uh, you know, you can even right now, can you be aware of the body to some extent, even as you're listening? You could try to be aware of the whole body. You can be aware maybe just of the hands on the knees. You can sit touching your hands together. You can do this at a meeting. You can do this when you're um, uh, just sitting around. You can feel the contact 
with the chair or the cushion. You can feel the feet on the floor. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to do this. You know, I've, I've worked with practices where I develop mindfulness of the whole body over a period of time to the point where mindfulness of the body becomes my default setting for my life. When I'm just walking around or with someone, and I practice it a lot. Those of you who've stepped, when sometimes we've, when we've practiced wise speech here, you know that I bring in, in the teaching that I've developed around speech and offered in day longs and retreats, we try to teach the capacity in speech and interaction to stay with one's body, which permits the possibility of mindfulness in interaction and action, which is not easy. It's not a beginning level capacity, but it can be developed. And the way to, one way to develop it is just to try when you're speaking with someone, can I just be aware of my hands? Can I just be aware of my hands on my knees or my hands together or my hands and feet? Possibly if you've done a lot of yoga or body practices, awareness of the whole body or part of the body might be accessible. But it changes everything because what, it, what this does, and I think this is part of what the Buddha was talking to, when we're mindful of the body, we, um, we disrupt the monopoly of the automatic mind. Which is one way of saying it's less likely for us to be lost in thought all the time. And you can see, and it also gives us another reference point. If we have a lot of mindfulness of the body, it gives us another reference point so that we might actually notice the thinking more readily. We might notice, you know, if I can be sometimes in my body, it's like being, it's like uh, I'm not totally caught in the mind, therefore I might notice more quickly when my mind or my emotions take me away somewhere. And so, again, you get some reasons to see, think that this is very important. So, first practice in your meditation, you could do mindfulness of breathing. You can also uh, work with mindfulness in these different postures. I'm going to give three practices that uh, I'll invite uh, us to take home. And the third is on the next page. This, this is called... Uh, the third section on full awareness, when going forward and returning, we act in full awareness. When looking ahead and looking away, we act in full awareness. When flexing and extending the limbs, one acts in full awareness. When wearing the robes, carrying the outer robe and bowl, one acts in full awareness. When drink, eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting and so forth. And so this is really inviting mindfulness of the body in all of our activities. Another place we can really do it is in eating. You know, take one meal a day where we just focus on mindfulness of taste. Or listen to music and just focus on mindfulness of hearing. Something like that. These are all aspects of mindfulness of the body. And so that's really the, the invitation, I think, of this practice. It's to... Um, you know, I found it incredibly valuable for about a four-year period. Mindfulness of the body was my focus, including at retreats where I would just be mindful, especially a lot in the first period of time, of my whole body and got to the point where the whole body was accessible in daily life. And so part of my intention when I give talks is can I stay in my body so I'm not just, as it were, 
on the mind loop? And can I stay in the body and also talk and listen? And it changes everything when we can do that because we can track more carefully what's happening. So I want to invite those practices. Take one or several practice and my invitation would be to commit to uh, really that focus on mindfulness of the body. And I'll, I'll, I won't be back again for three weeks. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, hope that, I hope that that's interesting for you because it's, it's so valuable. I can't, you know, this is, uh, for me certainly it's the case, but I can't underestimate how important this is for bringing everything we're doing here into daily life. It really, uh, again, maybe not for utterly everyone, but for most people I know, it's the way to make this work, is to have a strong mindfulness of the body. And there are all these ways we can train. It's not, uh, it's very accessible. It just is a matter of remembering to practice, right? And making a priority. Once we, when we actually do it, it's not hard. Because all we do is we do our best. When we get distracted, we come back. That's it. That's the practice. So, after that pep talk, (laughs) let's just sit for a moment and we can talk together some. reflections, questions, and I'll invite also, as we're doing this, uh, see if you can stay connected with your body. I'll do the same. Okay, uh, Patricia, please. Um, how would you address this if uh, this were a group for whom the body is not a safe place, like uh, oh, yeah. vets or people who suffer from post-traumatic stress or yeah. violated in some very traumatic Yeah, that's a great question. The question is, how would we teach mindfulness of the body where there's been some kind of trauma? Some, you know, could be uh, a veteran, uh, could be um, could be uh, someone who's had abuse and so forth. How would how would we do this? Um, I haven't had extensive experience working with people with trauma. We have given a lot of attention to it among the teachers, you know, and I think, um, I think one generally, um, there may be, there may be ways that we could distinguish certain uh, aspects of um, the experience of the body. And we, I think we would find that some may be more connected with trauma than others. And so we would try to make that distinction and go for the places, the, the experiences of the body where there, where there wasn't trauma. So, and another very important th- uh, consideration there, this is more in the context of retreats. We'd want, want to be, because there are different things happen when you sit in silence for 
you know, seven days than when you sit at home for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. It's, you know, we'd want to be especially careful on retreats. But we would basically, the guidance would basically be, see if, you know, the, the strategy for working with trauma, as you probably know, is that, that one would um, try to develop uh, safe places and resources that, get, can, that can get stronger and then one learns how to go into the traumatic territory for short periods of time and releases the built-up accumulation in the body. That's the basic strategy that most people use these days. And so um, some of that would be, you know, so it could be, there could be other tools used. Maybe there could be loving-kindness practice used or heart practices used as well. But generally one would uh, give the guidance Let's say if one was giving some guidance on being with some part of the body, we would say we want to work individually and really say track if you notice yourself getting activated in the way that's familiar with the trauma. And if that's happening, pull back. So you'd want to have close individual monitoring of the person. Guided uh, meditation has been something that's worked well with uh, people that have been severely traumatized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good, it's something that we're increasingly uh, sensitive towards here. We devoted um, some of our last uh, teacher's retreat to that theme. And I have a friend who uh, wrote a whole dissertation on meditation and trauma, partly coming out of his own experience, and uh, named David Trelevin, who's it's a very, very good piece of work. Yeah. Please. Section for you know that neutral, positive, or negative because to me those are emotions. Yeah, yeah. So the question is regarding the second foundation of mindfulness why is there a separate uh, foundation of mindfulness for pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral? I think the understanding is first of all, the you know, at the time of the Buddha the way of categorizing different parts of experience was different. They don't even have the word emotion. There's no equivalent of the word emotion in those languages. Pretty interesting. You know, it's, the word is uh, citta, C-I-T-T-A, which covers what we would call both mind and, or uh, thoughts and emotions. And they're more grouped together. So they, they do have anger, you know, anger appears. Uh, fear appears and so forth, but they're not, they don't have a category called emotions for them. They just are part of the larger category called citta. Um, that being said, I think the rationale is that the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is at a much uh, more primitive level of experience. You know, the, the claim is, and we'll see this more when we get to the second foundation, the claim is more that this is actually occurring with every moment of experience in certain subtle ways. And the sense of something unpleasant occurring uh, is taken to be quite primitive and it's taken, you know, it can, as it were, uh, let's say that I have an unpleasant experience occur with a friend and I feel, you know, and I say that's unpleasant and then out of that the emotion may form. So it's something it's something like seeing that that's more primitive, more basic, and the emotion is a little more 
developed. And, you know, actually psychologists, when they look at emotions, they actually, you know, the, the emotion also um, uh, brings in a lot of cultural material. You know, like, in other words, when I'm angry, I'm angry in a certain way. I've learned from my culture that's going to be different from how people get angry in another culture. So there's a lot of cultural material that's more, it's more um, developed, constructed, less primitive, less, less an automatic quality of experience. Yeah, thanks. Please. When, when I do a body scan, yeah. I immediately notice all these things that feel bad. Yeah. And so then I'm into aversion. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be much neutral or pleasant. So yeah. I'm wondering, I guess, is it, is it worthwhile to just notice that period, or is there a way to work with it? Yeah, so the question is about noticing that when one does a body scan, which is one way of doing mindfulness of the body, it's not mentioned in the text, but it's a very common way where we move the awareness from the head to the toe slowly. And it's a very, it's a very good practice. Um, And the question is that uh, quite a bit of what's encountered in your experience at times are unpleasant sensations in the body. (laughs) And and the question question about that is, should I just notice that? Yeah, is there a way of working with it? It's really a question of can you maintain balance? Does that matter for you that it's, because it sounds like it might be mildly unpleasant, right? Or is it? Yeah, yeah, It's not like my head. Oh, my head. Oh, oh no. Oh, my neck. Oh, my, my shoulders. Oh. That sounds like I'm beginning a stand-up routine or something. But it's, um, yeah, it sounds like it's mildly unpleasant. Um, uh, well, generally, whether you do that practice as opposed to some other body practice, that's you know, something you can look at. But if you can just go through it and feel it, you know, here we're primarily talking, we're not yet bringing in the sense of pleasant, the pleasant and neutral. So here it would be just to really feel what the sensations are like. And you can notice that it's unpleasant, but really just to be with the sensations, which so, you know, if it's a little, like right now sitting on my cushion, it's a little unpleasant. So I, can I really feel the sensations there, which are, you know, like there's some, some feeling of pressure, there's some, some sensations sort of darting around. <laughs> sensations will do that. <laughs> right? And can I, just, can I just be with that and track it, right? That would be the, that would be the instructions. Can I just, and then notice if my mind says, oh, I don't like this. You also notice that. that would be, that's more second foundation instruction. But the first foundation would just be, can I just be with the pressure? Okay. You know, because if it's mildly unpleasant, probably our mind is not saying, don't do this. It's just, it's okay, probably more or less with it. And so I, that's the way it is now for my, my sense of pressure and the darting sensations. <laughs> and can I, just, uh, can I just hang out with that and feel, feel the sensations? That would be the, the practice. Yeah. Uh, please. Can you um, speak more to the, um, the 
phrase and what you meant by um, that this can lead to a cultural healing and then the quote you read. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like often people say it can, but there's a big gap between sort of the personal yeah. practice. And what do I mean by that? Maybe in how, how can I make the connections? Yeah, because I didn't, I didn't unpack that. The question is, what do I mean by saying mindfulness of the body can lead to a cultural healing and that it's connected with, you know, as in the quote from Reginald Ray, he said, disembodiment is connected with our crises. Uh, so what do I mean by that? Well, um, I have about two minutes to give a response, <laughs> which, so I'll do it briefly, um, but I, yeah, I do, I do think about it quite a bit. Uh, so in terms of the level of crisis, um, uh, could think about it in a few different ways. Um, one is that uh, we are a culture which, in which we don't have a balance between our minds and our bodies and our emotions. You know, our energy is, is primarily with the mind, even though that mind tries to beautify the body, <laughs> you know but we're not aware of the body. Uh, and I think another way of saying it is that in our culture, the mind is somewhat out of balance. We, you know, it's out of balance with the heart. We, we are out of balance in terms of we can have, you know, um, really, you know, what, what has been called by Daniel Goleman, a lack of emotional intelligence, you know, uh, widespread culturally. Uh, locked into thinking, a lot of automatic thinking, without being connected with the good heart, and also, I think, without being uh, grounded in the body. Um, I've suggested that being with the body is a major way that we move towards that integration of mind and heart and emotion. And I think, you know, I think that leads, you know, when we have emotional intelligence, it leads to different kinds of human beings who, who, are, who make use of our birthright of being empathic, you know, which scientists say is our nature. It's in the limbic system, for example, on the level of the brain, that we can be empathic. We learn when we're pretty young kind of to shut that off. We get lot and, and an overemphasis on thinking is one of the ways that that happens. And uh, same thing with the body. We're not aware of our body. I think it's connected with a lot of our health issues, lack of exercise, um, I think it's connected with not being connected with the earth, not seeing ourselves. One of the meditations which we'll focus on next week is a meditation, the four elements, which what has as its one of its um, uh, fruits, as it were, our sense that our bodies are very much like the earth. They're made up of four elements. If we saw, maybe like native people see, our bodies as not different from the earth, would we treat the earth as we do? We treat it as a you know, something we can abuse, maybe like we sometimes abuse our bodies. So that's starting to give some hints, right, of, of how uh, that mindfulness of the body could lead to a general uh, integration of mind, heart, and body, which is, I think, what's called for historically at this time. And that permits, you know, and that permits us also to have, you know, what we, some, you know, in this culture we would call it spirit also be, be present. So the, the emphasis on the body can help us balance in those ways. I think that has, there are all sorts of gender implications of this. See, see I, I could take this for a while, <laughs> right? That I think that uh, there, there are a lot of ways that uh, certain, that uh, women tend to be more 
identified historically in the cultural coding with the emotions and the body, men more with thinking. It's changing a lot now. But that kind of coding is, so I think this is also very much connected with gender roles, certainly historically, you know. And, um, and so I think that this work would lead to a shift, to help with the shift in terms of gender, relation to the earth, and so forth, and, and help us really ha- have a wiser way of being with our, um, with our um, precocious neocortex. <laughs> if we can do that, <laughs> I think we may need to do that uh, to, um, I mean, let alone, you know, let alone all of the qualities that we'll need to actually deal with our crises of our time, which, which I think is being, re- you know, having all these resources that not let us get so afraid. Fear is a big danger when there are crises. You know, as we know, there's a lot of, even in the election campaign, a lot of fear, a lot of fear being sowed. And um, people who uh, have the capacity to not be afraid. You notice even the Buddha 2,600 years ago said, you're really good with mindfulness of the body. You will not get afraid in the same way. You are not such at the mercy of fear and dread. Interesting, that's 2,600 years ago, he's saying. I think that's true for now as well. So you see, I probably could um, extend this and support, I think, what I'm saying. But thank you for asking, because you're right, I didn't, I just sort of said it and without clarifying what I meant. Hmm. <laughs> so, good. so I think, uh, so I'll close by just inviting us to uh, consider focusing on mindfulness of the body until we meet again. Um, how many feel called to do that? Uh, yeah. Do that some. Um, that'd be great. And just see, you know, see your own way. I'll just end by saying that it could be giving a lot of focus to mindfulness of the breathing, really being with sensations. You can do it by being mindful as you walk in the different postures, mindful when you're just moving around. Try to, can possibly try to bring mindfulness of the body into speaking and interactions. Not so easy, but one can try that. Mindfulness into eating and so forth. So these are a few of the practices. You don't have to do all of them. Don't do too many. Just do one or two and do, the, do those well. But it's um, particularly interesting to bring the mindfulness of the body outside of the formal meditation when we're sitting on the cushion or the chair. And can I bring mindfulness, you know, as you are driving? You know, can I be mindful of my body as I'm driving? Yeah. So that's the invitation. And I'll continue. And um, I will strongly consider bringing at least a short period of uh, mindfulness through movement and um, some short, uh, simple, contemplative dance that's not physically demanding. Next time. And I, I may bring in my, my collaborator, Heather Monroe Pierce, has a wonderful CD of uh, a lot of the guided meditation and music related to this movement. And I, I, I have a copy of it. So I will, I may bring that in so you can get a taste of what we experienced in this five-day retreat by the Pacific Ocean at Esalen. Mm. Maybe you bring, okay. So uh, let's just sit quietly and bring to mind whatever was helpful from the day.
from our examination of mindfulness of the body and your intentions going out into your everyday life. And we offer our practice to those we meet, to each other, and ultimately out into the world for the benefit of all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.